We're in Psalm 119 tonight. Psalm 119. We took a glance at it uh, last Wednesday night, and I told you then that my plan is to simply look at it tonight and go on. Uh, we could spend, I found Spurgeon when he was doing his Treasury of David series talking about how he took a break because it was so intimidating. He wrote almost one volume of his series on this one psalm, and uh, it is so lengthy. So uh, we're just going to hit the highlights and then keep moving rather than get bogged down here. But tonight, to sort of introduce it to you, we read verse 1 through 8 last week. Tonight, verse 9 through 24. Psalm 119, verse 9 through 24. Somehow, that does not... Oh, you've got, what did I say, 9 through 24. There we are. That's 19, which we're going to get to. All right. Follow as I read. Psalm 119, verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to thy word? With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hidden in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips have have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will mediate, I'm sorry, I will meditate in thy precepts, and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant, that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thine judgments at all times. Thou hast rebuked the proud who are cursed, who do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. You will notice that, again, it's a very lengthy psalm, uh, 176 verses. There are more verses in this psalm than in 13 of the Old Testament books and in 16 of the New Testament books. In other words, one chapter in Psalms is longer than those books. It is not like what we've been doing on Sunday morning. We've talked about a chain, that is, things that are related and connected to one another. You'll notice that this is a uh, praise of the revelation, the law of God, the things that God has shown us, and that each verse stands more or less on its own. These are a series of, they're more like the Proverbs in some sense what we would say, a short, pithy statement. Do you know what I mean by pith, pithy? 
the pith of a plant is the fiber. And so when you say that something is pithy, you mean it's, it's boiled down to the meat, boiled down to the, the, the heart of the matter. And notice that each one of these verses sort of stand alone. One person likened them not to a chain, links in a chain like we've been dealing with on Sunday morning, but more like a string of pearls where each one is beautiful and wondrous in itself, but and it's next to another pearl, but it's not necessarily related to the other pearl. Very seldom do you find themes running here. There's themes all right, but they're very disjointed. So it's not in any sense a connection of ideas. It's just one thing after another. It's like somebody sitting around the campfire one night saying, how many ways, they sort of, you know, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Okay, how many ways can I say that I love the law of God? Let's see how many ways we can express that thought. And they kept compiling them and compiling them. It is an acrostic psalm. We've had a couple of those already. That is, psalms that may be 22 verses long, because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse begins with one verse, or like your ABCs, an alphabetical thing. In this case, each set of eight verses begins with one Hebrew letter. Aleph here in the first eight verses, Bet in the second, Gimel in the next set, and so forth. Each verse starts with that letter, if we were reading this. In Hebrew, therefore, you have 22 Hebrew letters, eight verses per letter. So that's how you wind up with 176 verses. Okay, y'all clear on that? Now we don't know who wrote this. Of course, the traditional author is thought to be David, but it's anybody's guess. There's really nothing in the psalm itself that would give us a clue, and it may have been a psalm that was assembled over several centuries, perhaps. Some say Solomon wrote part of it. Others say Nehemiah or Ezra after the return from captivity. There's even some that guess that some of these things were written during the Maccabean age, but we just don't know. Interesting things about this psalm. Are you all familiar with the Puritan Thomas Manton, you've heard the name. I mean, this thing has a mind of its own. It just goes nuts every now and then. Usually when Jim's got it on, it goes to hissing and fuzzy. At least it's not doing that tonight. Thomas Manton was one of the Puritans. Uh, some of you are big fans of the Puritans. How many of those guys, what names comes to, come to your mind when we say the Puritans? Flavel, John Flavel. Richard Baxter, Cotton Mather, well, yeah, sort of. He was, of course, in America. Well, you usually think of the Puritans because they stayed in the Church of England. Uh, the Pilgrims, of course, literally jumped ship. <laughs> they took off for America for better uh, climbs. The Puritans, their name indicating, wanted to purify the Church of England. They are in what, what time frame, typically? Right, they're in that, uh, you can think of the Mayflower, about 1620 or so, that's about the heyday. In fact, I think Matton was born in 1620. Uh, that's about their uh, their time frame. Um, you've, you've mentioned a, a number of names, and by the way, outside of Cotton Mather, um, every name you mention, when the edict of uh, 
uniformity, or conformity it's called, was passed in 1662. Every one of those names you mentioned left the, the Church of England. They were considered nonconformists. What, what happened, of course, you remember you had Charles I who was beheaded. Um, there's, there was this, you had Presbyterians in Scotland that were very reformed in their thinking. Remember, John Knox studied under John Calvin in Geneva, went to Scotland to be the reformer there. Whereas the Church of England never quite had the... I mean, you think of how did the Church of England uh, come about? Well, mainly because Henry VIII wanted a divorce, wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. And it never had quite the historical foundings as some of the other countries in the Reformation. And uh, as a result, there was a trying to blend together Presbyterianism of Scotland that was more like the Reformed Church over in Switzerland and the uh, Anglican Church there in England. And uh, you recall that when Charles I was beheaded, uh, you had Oliver Cromwell, and the Puritans pretty much ran the show. That's when you had the Westminster Confession, 1646. Um, then... Uh, Cromwell died, and by the time he died, they really didn't know what to do. So they went and fetched Charles I's son, Charles II, from Europe, reinstalled him as king. That was sort of a, I mean, sort of a dumb thing when you think about it. You behead this king, you try it on your own for about ten years, doesn't work, you go get his son, crown him king. Well, within two years, 1660, when Charles II was installed as king of England, uh, in 1662, this act of conformity, which meant basically that everybody had to conform to the Book of Common Prayer. That's the basic doctrine of the Anglican Church. And these Presbyterian guys, these Puritans, just couldn't bring themselves to do it. So many of them were defrocked. And for really 150 years, if you were not an Anglican, you, were, you could not hold an office you could not preach in a church uh, for 150 years. You were simply on the outs. And I, I think I shared with you the very moving experience of standing in Bunhill Fields in England, in London, and seeing where all of these Puritans were buried in this non This uh, It was a graveyard for everybody that was on the outs with the Church of England. And you've got atheists, agnostics, humanists, and then among them are these great names, John Owen, Baxter, you know, all of these hymn writers, Isaac Watts, Joseph Hart, Wesley's mother buried right there among all the atheists and all this because they were on the outs with the Church of England. Anyway, all of that to say that one of these Puritans is, of course, Thomas Manton. He wrote a three-volume, if you think I'm long-winded, he wrote a three-volume work on Psalm 119, each volume contains between 500 and 600 pages. That is a total of 1,677 pages on this one psalm. There are 190 chapters. That's more chapters than there are verses in Psalm 119. You could say he was fairly thorough. Then a very interesting story about this psalm. There's a fellow named George Wissert. Now, Wissert, there was a Wissert who was martyred 
in the 16th century. This is not him. This guy is another guy by the same name who was Bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century. Wishart was uh, condemned to death, and he was about to be... uh, He was at the gallows, but he thought that he was about to be pardoned. And the Scots had this rather uh, interesting custom that a man about to be executed could pick a psalm to sing. Well, guess which psalm he picks? Psalm 119. And by the time they made it two-thirds through this psalm, a writer showed up with his pardon. (laughs) So he actually missed being executed. I'm thinking, you know, if you're going to give me my choice of Psalm Jow, Psalm 119. And uh, most of his contemporaries said he wasn't that godly a man. He was just a shrewd fellow. He was pretty smart. Then there is the story about David Livingston. You know who he is, the missionary to Africa that wandered around out there for a long time. He uh, won a Bible from his Sunday school teacher for memorizing Psalm 119 when he was nine years old. Folks, we're, we're, we can't hold a candle. And, you know, part of it is because it's not that we can't. We just don't. We can blame it on this and that and the other thing. We're too busy watching TV and playing games and so forth. Can you imagine memorizing this psalm at age nine? Well, anyway, as we said last time, It is a psalm that extols the revelation of God. We sometimes would say the law of God, but remember that the word law, as we've talked about on Sunday morning, means a whole lot more than just the Torah, more than the Ten Commandments, more than even the books of law. There's many places that the law of God simply refers to his entire revelation. There are places that, two places in John's Gospel, where Jesus will say, it is written in your law, and then he quotes something out of the psalm. Not out of the law per se, the law of Moses, but simply, you see, referencing the entire Old Testament revelation. The writer will use a series of words to speak of the law, various synonyms. For instance, he'll use the word law, and it's the word Torah. It it means simply the teaching that comes from God. It may be used of a single command, or it may be used of the whole body of the law. There's the word word, dabar. It's the idea of the spoken word of God proceeding from his mouth revealed to us. Sometimes you see the word judgments. It is from a word that means to judge, determine, regulate, discern, to order, um, Then there is another word, testimonies. You'll see that one often. Uh, For instance, the rabbis said that the Sabbath command was actually a testimony. And the, the idea is, is that the Sabbath testified of the creative work of God creating the earth in six days and so forth and resting the seventh. So in other words, this commandment has a reference, sort of like a type or a shadow of some other thing And so this is an example of why they would call this a testimony. Uh, Then there are the words commandments, and that word generally uh, references the fact that whoever is giving this is someone in authority. The general gives commandments to the troops. Uh, The word statue 
is a word that oftentimes speaks of being something that's being engraved or inscribed, and it speaks of something written down, and so the idea of the written Word of God. Uh, the word precepts, uh, I'm reading here from a particular definition. It says, this is a word drawn from the spear of an officer, an overseer, a man who is responsible to look closely into a situation and take action. So the word points to the particular instructions of the Lord as one who cares about detail. So we would say the precepts or the so the end of you got the general idea and then you have how are we going to work this out? Well here's the details. Uh, or the word word, again there's another Hebrew word that imra uh, it's similar in meaning to the meaning to the bar, but it's a different term, but it means that which God has spoken or commanded. And then you have the word way, the ways of God. Uh, which again don't necessarily carry to our ear the notion of a commandment or a law, but when you think about it, well, what are God's ways? How would those ways be revealed? They would be revealed in His directives. And then the word truth, sometimes it's translated in the King James faithfulness, but it means God's fidelity, His truth. Now, that's about ten words that you're going to find. I gave you an exercise last week to see if you could find any verses that did not reference the law, the revelation of God in some way, shape, form, or fashion. There are a few that look sort of like it. Again, keep in mind, uh, you read one guy and he says there's eight of them. Another guy says, no, there's just one. Some will say there's none. The rabbis usually said there's one. But let's see what you came up with. Who's got it? Camille, have you got them? 121 and 122. Well, 122 is the verse that the rabbis say does not refer. It's the only verse they say in the whole thing that doesn't refer to some aspect of the law. Okay, uh, uh, 121, uh, judgments usually, and, and again, uh, keep in mind, jury's out on some of these, but in the King James it reads, uh, and it doesn't read that way in every version, I have done judgment and justice, lead me not to thy oppressors, and it's generally thought that the term judgment there refers to some direct, like the, the judge giving a directive. But 122, that's the one that the rabbis. All right, I see, I see that hand. Who's got it? Amber? 132. Let's go down and look at it. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me, as thou used to do unto those who love thy name. Now, my mind, my memory is not what it ever was. Uh, but anyway, in another version, that phrase, as thou used to do, is in fact, and I cannot recall which one of these ten terms, but it actually in the Hebrew employs one of those ten terms I threw out at you. 
doesn't show any sign of that in the English. That's why that verse looks like it doesn't refer to the law, but in fact it does if you look at the Hebrew. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, that's a good guess. That's If you were reading this in English, that's how you would see it. So, in other words, we one of the problems is that the English may read one way. Anybody got any other ideas? Uh, Sue? 84. I had a whole list of uh, possible candidates written down. But uh, again, how many are the days of thy servant? Uh, wilt thou... uh, when wilt thou execute, and here's that term again, judgment. That's why this word looks, it's this term mispatim, judgments. Um, That's the one I said it means to judge, determine, regulate, or to order something. And so it falls into this basic idea of some sort of directive, put it that way. But that was one I had jotted down. Somebody else? I'm sorry? Yes, 90 is um, the one where it speaks of, this word really means truth. And it's the idea of your fidelity, your truth. And keep in mind, we would think of faithfulness as your adherence to truth. But again, it's one of the words, one of those ten terms I gave you earlier. Yeah, Barry was supposed to have all of this, and I hadn't heard a peep out of Barry. She already beat you too. You're, in other words, you're claiming credit for Camille's. 121 and 122. Okay. Any, any other possible? I think there is one other. Well, and keep in mind that in the very beginning of the psalm, uh, the idea of God's ways, verse 3, thou, they also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. But again, ways is one of those words that pops up in this thing that speaks of uh, the more than simply, you know, his movements, but his directives, that that type of thing. Uh, so, in other words, it's it's not important. I mean, you're not going to be electrocuted if you don't get it right. Well, we might. We'll see. But uh, but the most likely candidate is that verse 122. That's the one, at least the rabbis, and they, of course, study these things quite a bit. Did you realize that the middle of the Bible is Psalm 118? And the shortest chapter is 117, the longest chapter 119, and 118 is the middle of the Bible. Just useless information. Another way to classify these uh, verses is not just by the words that are being used. And you can see here that they went to a great deal of trouble trying to sort of employ synonyms, different ways of saying the same thing. Hebrew tends to use these parallelisms. You say it, and then you turn around and say the same thing using different words, which is very helpful, because if you don't get it the first time, you can pick it up on the second pass. Uh, Poetry works that way to some degree. We're saying the same concept. We're saying it over and over again. What we begin to see here is they went to a great deal of trouble to think, number one, to think of how many ways can I express this, and secondly, how can I make it fit this acrostic? It's got to start with the particular Hebrew letter. 
So that took some work. Now, why do you suppose you would do that? What's the rationale? Why, you know, what's the reason to this madness? For memorization, it is thought that this is the way that you would teach children uh, to learn the alphabet, to uh, write these things down. This is part of your lessons, and uh, that may well be. That would seem to that's what we do. We use the same type of tools in our teaching. There are some who say that you can not only order these by the words used, but you can also sort of put them into different categories of the Word of God is useful in these situations. For instance, in your youth. Some of them speak of that. In times of trials, in times of meditation, in times of uh, public worship, in times of private worship, in times of prosperity, and in times of adversity. So there's different ways to sort them. And you'll find several of these texts that deals with when you're having hard times, Here's where you turn. You turn to the law. When you're doing good, what do you do? You turn to the law. So uh, you can sort of sort them that way. I tonight would like to just point your attention to, I think I've got about seven of them written down here, that I think are out of these 176, uh, these are some that mean a great deal to me. They're sort of my favorites. One of those is verse 11. We read it just a moment ago. It says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Now, first of all, what does it mean to hide something in your heart? Keep it safe, Jim. Treasured. Treasure it up in your heart. And that all. But typically, how do we interpret this notion? of hiding the Word of God in your heart. You memorize it. You store it up. You treasure it in your heart, and you do that by memorizing it. That reminds us that the access to the Word of God, to the Scripture that you and I have, and we just take for granted, has not always been that way for most of the history of God's people. Um, it, it struck me, looking at the Isaiah scroll in the museum there in Jerusalem, this thing's 24 feet long. And the fact that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading out of this scroll as he's in this chariot returning to Ethiopia tends to, uh, this is the gospel according to Mark, but uh, it tends to make me think that he had probably purchased that scroll in Jerusalem, is on his way back to Ethiopia with a copy because these things are tremendously expensive. I mentioned seeing the scribes up on Masada. They had a little room up there on top where these scribes are in there hand-copying the Old Testament in Hebrew. They will make you a copy for the sum of about $60,000. takes months and months and months to do it. And they had a shift change as we were there and I went in there, and the guy was just working away. But Linda went in there, and they did a shift chain. They posed with her and all this stuff. She sweet-talked them, I guess. But uh, they'll make you a copy, a handwritten copy. But you, you get the idea that just the skins would be very valuable. Uh, these manuscripts that are called Pamela sets, they are 
scraped skins where you had one writing on them and then they scrape them off, sort of like erasing a blackboard and you reuse it. And sometimes like erasing a blackboard, you don't get everything marked off. For instance, the scroll that Biza had at uh, Geneva, uh, they were at, we've actually been able to recapture with the use of modern technology the, the original script of the scroll that was underneath this Syria, Ephrami, or whatever, some pagan or secular poem. They scraped a copy of the scriptures off and wrote this thing on top of it, but we've actually been able to recover that. So my point being that to have your own personal scripture, I mean, even in the New Testament times, your church might have a collection of writings, but it would typically be just the church. The average church member would never have access to the Scripture, and it wasn't until the invention of the printing press that Scripture was widely disseminated and in the hands of the common man. You just couldn't afford it. It was way too expensive, way too difficult to do. And so the fact that we take for granted our access to the Scripture that other people treasured greatly. In fact, during the persecutions, uh, oftentimes the uh, soldiers would show up and demand that the bishop, the pastor, turn over the scrolls uh, to them. And uh, the good part is most of the time these Roman soldiers didn't know Mark from Venus, you know, they didn't have a clue. And a lot of times they'd hand them scrolls that had nothing to do with the Scriptures, and they didn't know the difference. They just took the scrolls. But uh, when they caught on, they would come back and ask for these Scriptures. And some people died, were martyred, because they wouldn't turn these scrolls over to the Roman Roman soldiers. So uh, I, it makes me at least think I ought to have a higher value of the written Word of God than I have. That if it's this precious, how, why don't I spend more time in it? Okay, next one, verse 18. He says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And this is interesting in that it implies that there is light in the law itself, but there's another sense in which God must do a work in me for me to see that light. You see the idea? It's like he that hath an ear, let him hear. Well, everybody's got ears, but not everybody has an ear to hear. And notice the psalmist here is basically saying there are wondrous things in your law, I am not having my eyes open that I'm reading this into the law. It's already there, but I need my eyes open to behold it. And I think that is an interesting way of seeing that typically when we speak of God revealing himself to us, we're speaking of an outward objective revelation of truth, but there has to be an inward work, an enlightenment, enabling us to be able to see the truth. It's right there under our nose, but can we see it? Uh, have you had the experience of uh, suddenly having the Word of God just open up to you and things that were there all along? The words did not change, but all of a sudden, it's like I never saw this before. I, I was sharing with somebody the other day my experience of when it hit me, the sovereignty of God in salvation, and it was reading Acts thirteen forty-eight, and I was sure somebody had been messing with my Bible. Because I knew it just couldn't read that way, or I would have seen this before. But the fact is, I'd never seen this before. I'd read it, I don't know how many times, but I was reading it like it was for the first time, and it's just like, whop! Well, that's what the psalmist is saying. Verse 67, and let's take with that verse 71. This speaks of affliction. 
In Psalm 119.67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. And then Psalm 71 says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And that is uh, uh, the, the way that we ought to look at the trials that befall us in life, that those trials are designed to bring, to get our attention, to bring our attention to the Word of God and to show us His Word. Uh, go to Psalm 89. This is one that is often quoted. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Well, there's a lot of different slants put on this, but I think at the very least what you begin to see is that God's Word, God is not making this up as He's going. He's not shooting from the hip. Uh, how else would you express that? Flying by the seat of your pants? That is, God is not reacting to what is going on on earth that what he has ordained is settled, and it is settled in the heaven uh, forever. It is eternal. the very least, it means that. Um, verse 97. This is the one where the psalmist says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Paul in Romans 7 says, I delight, in the, and Robert, we were talking about this at supper tonight, that I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That there's a sense in which the believer wants to know God's revelation. He wants to know that as we speak of the law as an objective standard, the Christian wants to know what that is, and the Christian delights in it, loves it. Now, the lost man, not so much. <laughs> he would rather just uh, have that thing, he loves darkness. He doesn't want to see what God wants and what God commands. One of the great differences between the Christian and the lost man is not that the, the Christian quits sinning, but that the, law, that the Christian doesn't want to sin anymore. Now, the lost man doesn't want to sin a lot. He doesn't want to sin enough to get him in trouble, but he doesn't want to quit sinning, you understand. The Christian would love never to sin again because he delights in the law of God. He loves the law of God. That is what he desires in our great hope. The hope of heaven is not so much we'll be up there with pearly gates and mansion over the hilltop, but that we'll be in a situation where we will never sin again. That's, that's our great desire, is to be in that kind of setting. 105, verse 105, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have shared with you several times, I don't know if anybody's ever taken me up on this, but in our library there's a book called Strange Scriptures That Perplex the Western Mind. I've mentioned that a couple of times. Anybody ever got that book out? I assume it's still in our library. Apparently it's near pristine condition because nobody's ever... Uh, gotten it. I see, I see how well my recommendations go over here. Anyway, it was written by Bob Jones graduates uh, that went to the Middle East as missionaries somewhere around 1900, way back there, when life in the Middle East was pretty much as it had been for centuries after centuries, much like it was in the time of Christ. And uh, they were. this was one of those perplexing scriptures that they gave an example, and they said that 
the people where they lived literally wore candles on their feet at night. They had lamps that they would attach to their feet when they went walking at night that illuminated the way. That was an interesting thing. I've got all kinds of questions about how that worked, how you could keep burning your toes and that sort of thing. But obviously, that's the idea that, you know, there are no street lights. There's no light bulbs anywhere. You've got to have some sort of light. They didn't have a flashlight. Well, how do you carry your light? How do you light your path? Well, you put them on your feet, according to these guys. I, you know, I don't know. Never seen that myself, but that was an interesting story. And uh, notice the idea is, is that for us to be able to walk, that is to live our life, as we are to conduct ourselves, we need this light to illuminate our path, or else we'll wander off. And that brings us to the very last verse of this long, long chapter, 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Now that's interesting. After 175 verses extolling the virtues of knowing and seeing the law of God and loving the law of God, we get to the very last verse, then the psalmist said, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant. I've told you over and over again, I don't know who wrote Little Bo Peep, but they didn't have a ghost of an idea about sheep. Because this notion about leave them alone and they'll come home, it ain't going to fly, folks. My experience with sheep is the only way they're ever going to come home, you're going to have to go get them. They're not coming back. They have to be fetched. They have to be sought and found. And half the time I wound up not only finding them, but then having to kick them back to the bar. I wasn't quite so kind as the good shepherd carrying the sheep. I generally kicked them across the creek and the into the barn. Um, my patience, I guess I wasn't very good good shepherd material with my sheep, but the idea is, is folks, the sheep that's lost is not coming back on its own. This is not a question of free will. This is not a question of the shepherd standing in the door of the barn and yelling, calling the name of the sheep. It is a matter of the shepherd fetching Seeking the sheep, just as Jesus told the story in, in Luke 15. Notice the psalmist is saying the same thing here. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Notice the going astray is in mass. But then, once you're out, it's sort of like my sheep finding a hole in the fence. We, we used to plant winter wheat right next to the pasture. Now, the pasture... Of course, by late fall, there's not a blade of grass out there. They've eaten everything, and I'm having to feed them hay and grain and all this. And right next to the pasture is a pasture of winter wheat. Nice and green, growing over there. And the problem is later on, here's your lesson in farming. Wheat has a process. It has to go through what's called vernalization. Vernalization. It has to get enough cold weather to go dormant. Because if the sheep graze it down to the nub before then, it'll kill it. But once the wheat goes dormant, this vernalization, you can turn them out on it and let them graze. So you have to keep them off of it till this happens. 
And so you go several months with these sheep sitting over here with absolutely nothing to eat out here in the pasture, and they're standing there at the fence line looking across at all this green stuff out there. So you can imagine what happens when they find a hole in the fence. It's just in mass the whole flock head through that hole. But once they get through the hole, all we like sheep have gone astray. All in mass we went astray. They've turned each one to their own way. They scattered like ants. And that's us. We all have gone astray, but the individual way we've turned. I mean, the way I go astray and the way you go astray. The way you sin and the way I sin. But we've all gone astray and then we take our individual choices. How are you going to sin? I'm going to sin this way. I'm going to sin this way. And so then they must be fetched. And notice the psalmist is saying, Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. The commandments is identifying for us our lostness. The commandments are also pointing us to the remedy, to the solution. The law not only pointed us to to our sin. The law, as you know from the ceremonies and the rituals and so forth that went on the temple, also pointed us to the substitute, to someone who would do stand in our place and do for us. It didn't do it. It just pointed us to it. And therefore, Paul will say that there is this new way of righteousness which is without the law, but it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets pointed to it, witnessed of it, but the law and the prophets could never do it for us. What do we need? We need God to seek this servant who has gone astray. Okay, well, any other any other. Verse, favorite verses anybody has out there? Psalm 119. I mean, there's a bunch of them. Jim? I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm a Reformed shepherd. I've uh, no longer... Oh, well, I tell you what. After you have sought, after you have had to get out in the middle of a thunderstorm for the umpteenth time, because these sheep are literally too stupid to come in out of the rain... Your patience just goes right out the window. I mean, they—they they will. Um, I, I say they have a deaf wish. They stay up late at night trying to figure out a way to die the next day, and they can think of some pretty good ways to die, and they can pull it off. It is just incredible how utterly stupid sheep can be. And is there then any doubt why our Lord used sheep to depict us? Stupid, helpless, and they stink. (laughs) Pretty well sums us up. (laughs) Okay. I was going to say, yeah, whatever your name is back there, Jim. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll move on. I didn't want to get bogged down here. I want to keep us on a psalm of night, so we'll move on. But a wonderful tribute, as it were to the revelation, the objective revelation of God. When you ask Paul, what advantage does a Jew have? He's just as big a sinner as a Gentile. Paul answers in about every way because to him was delivered the oracles, the sayings of God. He has this revelation. His pagan nature neighbor did not. 